0: Probably blasting the radio in a little red sports car. Just cruising along the highway minding your own business and bang. The glass right behind your head explodes. You look to your friend and the horror of what's just happened sets in. It's already too late. He's covered in blood and has a hole in his head. Good evening, friends and enemies. Welcome to Exploring Evil, where you can hear stories of lesser known and international serial killers. Go ahead and click that subscribe button and tell all of your friends and enemies about Exploring Evil. Email case suggestions to exploringevil at gmail.com. If you're interested in the paranormal, you should check out my other podcast. It's called Critique, and we cover the paranormal, hidden history, Forbidden Knowledge, and Conspiracy Theories. You can find it everywhere you find Exploring It. For tonight's show, we're going to stay in the States. This incredible two-part story takes place in the northernmost state, Alaska. Alaska is a beautiful place, there's no doubt about that. I had a friend who visited Alaska and she told me it was amazing seeing eagles land in trees 15 feet away from her like it was a robin or a cardinal. We imagine killer whales hunting in pods and grizzly bears snatching salmon right out of the air, dog sledding and living off the grid. It's an almost endless wilderness, some untouched by man but it has its share of crime in the cities. Anchorage is well known for its drug problem and prostitution, but tonight's story is about what can happen to a good guy. A guy who was loved by many and never hurt anyone. Jeffrey Kane was born in Alaska in 1970, He was the third born and was six years younger than his next oldest sibling, Brian, and eight years younger than his sister, Colleen. He was the baby of the family. His father, Ronald, had been stationed by the military in Alaska in 1964 and his family moved to Alaska with him. Jeffrey was, by all accounts, a wonderful person who was loved and admired by all and had a bright future. His father said Jeffrey played soccer in the summer, and hockey in the winter. He was said to have a fun personality and a great sense of humor. He graduated from Chugiak High School in 1988 and began taking some classes at the local community college. In August 1990, Jeffrey got a job at the Fort Richardson Army Base as a computer analyst and programmer. He loved his job and was in the process of closing on a home. Like I said earlier, he had a bright future with no limits to what he could accomplish. October 19, 1990 was a Friday night, and Jeffrey had plans to hang out with a friend that evening. He told his mother, Teresa, he didn't have much money, and this would be his last night going out so he could put money into his new home. He told her he loved her and left to meet up with his best bud, Robbie Chamberlain. They were going out for a burger, but would never make it to the restaurant. The sun sat at 6.42 in Anchorage. At approximately 7.20 p.m., a young man rushes into the KFC on Muldoon Road screaming for help. Oh! Help! help! It was Robbie Chamberlain. He said he had been driving down the highway, and out of nowhere, his friend had been shot. He was probably in shock and very confused as one would expect. Former Anchorage police officer Rob Hewen was the first to arrive on scene and he described Robbie Chamberlain as very upset and he told the officer his friend had been shot. Hewan looked in the car and saw Jeffrey Kane lying Robert, in the passenger okay? seat, deceased, with a gunshot wound to the head. Hewan was concerned that the shooter may still be active in the area. But Robbie soon explained that it happened on Glen Highway near Muldoon Road. The officer soon realized that the police didn't know where the shooter or shooters were, not to mention who they were. He wondered if it was a random shooting at the Red Toyota MR2, or if they specifically targeted Robbie or Jeffrey, or both. At 9:15 p.m., Robbie called the cane home and broke the sad news to Jeffrey's parents but he couldn't bring himself to tell them Jeffrey had been murdered. He only told them to meet him at the KFC on Muldoon and they rushed to the scene immediately wondering how serious his condition was. The police would not let them into the crime scene and ask them to have a seat in one of the police cruisers. An officer, not knowing who the Keens were, told them the road was closed due to the homicide. That's when they realized Jeffrey had passed, and they were understandably devastated. But Ronald tried to remain stoic in the face of the tragedy and be strong for his wife. I can't imagine what it would feel like to lose a child, and what an awful way to find out. Soon, another officer approached them and told them it was a drive-by on the highway and will most likely never be solved. As so often happens, his parents wondered what they could have done differently to prevent their son's murder. Seeking justice for the murder of their son was all they had left. Well, not all they had left. They were left with the fear they would never even know why. On the morning of October twentieth, 1990, it turned into a media circus and was being reported in print, on the radio, and of course, on TV. Alaska, and especially Anchorage, were shaken, wondering, could this happen again? The police made an appeal to the public for witnesses. Most Alaskans, police included, believed it was a random drive-by sniper and that they had selected Robbie and Jeffrey with no rhyme or reason. Police began combing the highway for shell casings, hope against hope that they would get lucky. It was shaky at best, but the police didn't have much else to go on, and they were worried that this shooting had all the earmarks of a spree killer. Was there any motive? Jeffrey's friends and acquaintances all spoke glowingly of him. Of course, back in 1990, there were no cell phones to trace, and police were left with an MR2 with a shattered back window. An MR2 is a two-seater sports car, and the occupants' heads are right in front of the rear window, making Jeffrey an easy target. Police were running out of leads when, as luck would have it, a witness appeared out of thin air, to police claiming to know the shooter. Not only that, he said he'd been the backseat passenger when the shooting took place. Naturally, the Canes needed answers who and why. 19 year old college student George Kerr was the man who came forward as the witness. Kerr told investigators that Raymond Cheeley, who went by the nickname Smiley, was the driver of the car and police believed he was the ringleader then George Kerr fingered Doug Gustafson or lizard as he was known as the shooter a decision that would see everlasting consequences the gang had gone to the same high school as Jeffrey but they reportedly didn't know each other high school classmates of Cheeley and Gustafson described them as gun nuts on the day of the murder, the three had been shooting target practice less than an hour away from where the highway shooting took place. Kerr told police Gustafson was the passenger and Cheeley was driving while he rode in the back. During questioning, Kerr told police they were in a quote basic party mood and wanted to have fun and get drunk. Cheeley. The driver thought he'd been cut off and was probably having some road rage. Kerr admitted that the red MR2 with Kane and Chamberlain in it had done nothing wrong or reckless. Kerr said there was a conversation in the car about trying to shoot out the tires of the Toyota. Cheely sped up and approached the Toyota, and Gustafson said he was going to shoot the car. Cheely responded, quote, Yeah, let's show them fucks what they're dealing with now. As they approached the vehicle, Gustafson rolled his window down. Kerr claimed he didn't know Gustafson was serious until he pulled the trigger. Gustafson reportedly said, I missed, and Kerr believed him because the MR2 sped onto the exit ramp for Muldoon Road. Kerr told the police he found out that Jeffrey Kane had been murdered, and he knew it was Gustafson and Cheely who were to blame. Kerr said he got a phone call from Gustafson and Cheely saying that the weapon would be hidden and he needed to keep his mouth shut. George Kerr went to work that morning as usual, but he couldn't keep his mouth shut and told his manager what had happened. His manager told him he needed to go to police immediately, and so he did. Kerr even volunteered to wear a wire and talk to Doug Gustafson about the murder. On October 21st, Kerr approaches Gustafson at Gustafson's job at the Anchorage Airport. A police investigator and an assistant district attorney drove Kerr to the airport so that they could execute the glass warrant, which we'll discuss later on. As they approached their destination, Kerr asked what would happen if his conversation with Gustafson revealed that they had stolen some property. Kerr then disclosed that the week before, he, Gustafson, and Cheeley had burglarized a meat market in Eagle River, stealing about $20,000 in cash. Kerr said that he was informing the authorities of this crime because he realized that it might come up during his conversation with Gustafson. At this point, the police car was about to arrive at the airport. The assistant DA decided that Given the possibility that Cheely might be aware of Kerr's decision to aid the police, he might be attempting to contact Gustafson, and it was in the government's interest to grant Kerr immunity for the burglary and theft, rather than delay or abandon the attempt to execute the warrant. The prosecutor told Kerr that if this was indeed all that Kerr failed to reveal, the government would not prosecute him for the burglary. Kerr told investigators that Gustafson used the money to buy the rifle used in the murder. George Kerr, wired up for audio, went to meet Doug Gustafson at the Anchorage airport, his place of employment. The assistant DA and police were listening. Kerr told Gustafson the cops had called his house looking for him. Kerr tells Gustafson he's got to get rid of the gun and then asks, Why'd you kill that guy? Gustafson replies with, I didn't mean to. In court, that pretty much counts as a confession, and Chile and Gustafson were arrested and charged with murder. I can't imagine the bevy of emotions that ran through the cane when they found out the murderers had been arrested after being told the case would probably go unsolved. Prosecutors decided to try Chile and Gustafson separately. Raymond Chile was nicknamed Smiley for a reason. He was always smiling. In pictures, he always has what my family described as a shit eating grin. Even as he sat through a murder trial that would determine his fate possibly for the rest of his life, he smirked almost non-stop. But being the coward that he is, he never looked at Jeffrey's family. Cheely, still smirking, was sentenced to 60 years in prison. The family struggled with the answers they got as to why these three evil individuals decided to take their son's life. They thought any one of these men could have stopped the shooting from happening, and they were all culpable in the murder of Jeffrey Kane. An Anchorage grand jury indicted Gustafson for first-degree murder. Following his indictment, Gustafson asked the Superior Court to suppress all evidence obtained under the glass warrant. A glass warrant refers to the need for a warrant to run a wiretap or similar audio surveillance in Alaska. Gustafson contended that, after Kerr's confession to the burglary and theft, the authorities knew or should have known that Kerr was no longer a citizen informant, but a criminal informant. Gustafson argued that the police and prosecutor, once they received this information, were obligated to desist from attempting to execute the glass warrant. They were instead obligated to return immediately to the magistrate who issued the warrant and inform him of this new information so that the magistrate could reevaluate his decision to answer the warrant. Put simply, the circumstances changed once Kerr admitted to being a criminal, and the glass warrant may not have been issued had the magistrate known it was a criminal informant and not a citizen informant. The prosecutor responded that even if Kerr had lost his status as a citizen informant, his account of the shooting was still sufficiently corroborated to establish probable cause to issue the warrant. The prosecutor argued that exigent and pressing circumstances, the fast-breaking nature of the investigation, and the imminent danger that Cheely would contact Gustafson and tell him about Kerr's decision to aid the police, had justified the authorities' decision to proceed with the monitored conversation. There was no evidence at that point that Gustafson and Cheeley hadn't planned to commit more murders either. Judge Johnstone ruled that Kerr's admission of the burglary and theft did not invalidate the already issued glass warrant. He found that the officer who applied for the warrant had testified in good faith at the hearing. Judge Johnstone further ruled that, despite Kerr's later confession to the burglary and the prosecutor's grant of immunity for those crimes, Kerr remained a citizen informant. For his crime of second-degree murder, Doug Gustafson was sentenced to 65 years in prison. He was not given a date that he would be eligible for parole. Gustafson appealed on numerous grounds, but in the end, the conviction was affirmed. After his testimony, George Kerr was given immunity for both the murder and the robbery. And that's where the story should end. Justice served, sort of, if you believe Kerr didn't do anything wrong, but Jeffrey's mother holds Kerr responsible too. And of course, Chile and Gustafson were furious with Kerr, with vengeance in their hearts, as you might imagine. Too bad for them, they were in prison. Although most of us think of Alaska as just an enormous wilderness, Anchorage currently has almost 300,000 residents. The violent crime rate was climbing and there was a real drug problem in the city. The community was very concerned and the local authorities were described as struggling to get a grip on it. Thunderbird Falls sits just 20 miles away from downtown Anchorage and is a quiet, close-knit community where everyone knows everyone. September 17th, 1991, an explosion rips through a home in Thunderbird Falls, just past the suburbs of Anchorage, Alaska. The roof completely caved in, and neighbors described the event as, quote, feeling like an earthquake. Volunteer first responder, Eddie Athey, described the scene as chaotic when he arrived. It was obvious the windows had blown out, the front wall of the home had been separated from the house. Firefighters on the scene surmised it was a gas explosion, but the much darker truth would soon be revealed. They had to sit back in anticipation of other problems with the utilities in the house eventually they were able to work their way through the house in search of survivors and casualties as well the community was shocked that something like this could happen in their small town unbelievably a female victim was clinging to life and was soon rushed out in an ambulance Shelley kerr told medics she felt like she was melting and her hearing and vision were damaged Retired Postal Inspector Jim Bordney described the victim as grievously injured, with catastrophic injury, and that shrapnel had literally torn through her body. The medics asked her questions in the ambulance as she wavered between awake and unconscious. They had to yell because her hearing had been badly damaged by the blast. She told them David Kerr was still in the house, and they had to go find him. When firefighters located him, they knew he was deceased and it looked like he was right in front of the explosion when it ignited. Shelley was able to tell police that David had picked up the package at the post office and was handling it when it exploded. Out of the 181 billion packages sent through the U.S. mail that year, this was the only one that contained a bomb. As I'm sure you're aware, Any crime involving the Postal Service is a federal crime and the scene was soon crawling with investigators. They set up an evidence tent and literally used screens to sift through the ashes. They were trying to deduce if the bomb was made from military or commercial grade explosives but there was almost nothing left of the bomb. They found a plastic piece from one of the switches and the remains of a 9-volt battery. They determined the bomb was homemade, and that's where the investigation took shape. But who wanted the Kerr family dead? Like the earlier shooting, investigators didn't know if this was an isolated incident or if there were more bombs headed to other homes. Once again, the good people of Anchorage had a healthy fear that this wasn't a one-off, and along with the media, believed everyone was a potential target. We know how the media likes to get people hyped up. A $10,000 reward was offered to anyone leading authorities to the killer or killers. The reward led to hundreds of tips and each one had to be investigated thoroughly. Shelley was later able to tell police the bomb was addressed to George Kerr. The same George Kerr whose testimony sent two men to prison for a long, long time. Through her garbled breathing, she said, Doug did it. George sent him to jail. It didn't take long for investigators to figure out that she was talking about Doug Gustafson and Raymond Cheeley. But they were securely locked away in an Alaskan prison. And how would one prepare a bomb in prison? investigators took the approach that someone on the outside carried out the attack on behalf of Cheeley and gustafson but they also took into account george's robbery of the meat market and there could be potential suspects linked with that crime as well after all he helped steal 20 grand admitted to it and was never even charged but the owner of the establishment they robbed passed a lie detector and was ruled out as a suspect. Leaving no stone unturned, as good investigators, Jeffrey Kane's family was looked at as well. Remember, Jeffrey's father, Ronald, was in the military and had plenty of experience with explosives. According to investigators, Ronald's military experience was as a combat engineer who used explosives, which he denies. Again, authorities cleared Ronald with a polygraph the Postal Service called in its best and brightest postal inspectors from around the country to assist it's almost always a good thing when investigators ask for help and it shows their only interest is solving the case no matter who gets the credit the investigation into Raymond Cheeley and Doug Gustafson officially kicked off a prison informant told authorities he had witnessed the passing of notes between Cheeley and Gustafson in the prison chapel, the only place they could be together. Another inmate said Cheeley had shown him a catalog you could use to order components to make a bomb. A search of Cheeley's cell revealed a hit list of people he wanted to get even with. It included assistant DA Steve Branchflower, a judge, and of course... George Kerr. Again, investigators knew they didn't make the bomb in prison and mail it out, but where was the help on the outside coming from? Doug Gustafson has a sister and a brother authorities were interested in. Raymond Cheeley had a buddy named Joe Ryan on the outside. Inspectors turned to the communications Cheely and Gustafson had with outsiders and found Gustafson's sister Peggy frequently visited her brother at the penitentiary. Inspectors turned to the communications Cheely and Gustafson had with outsiders and found Gustafson's sister Peggy frequently visited her brother at the prison. Not only that, but she had also visited Raymond Cheely. Everyone knows they record all of the phone calls in prison, right? Well, apparently Spring Creek Prison was too big to record all of the phone calls. But investigators were able to locate several conversations that had been recorded, luckily. Investigators were able to track down lots of innocuous phone calls between Doug and family members. They quickly surmised through phone call records that they weren't getting the full recordings of Gustafson's phone calls and asked prison employees to keep searching for more recordings. The persistence paid off and they found incriminating conversations between Gustafson and his sister, Peggy. Peggy was a dental hygienist by day, but like Doug, she had a dark side. Peggy had played a significant role in Doug's life and was responsible for his upbringing, in part, as a mother figure. She also vehemently believed Doug was innocent and would do anything for him. But could a run-of-the-mill, heavily pregnant, suburban mother really be responsible for a mail bombing? The calls revealed conversations between Doug and Peggy where she mentioned that she had burned up two batteries, She said she couldn't get the light bulb to light up and burn the batteries while attempting to do so. They tried to camouflage their conversations by frequently saying that they were talking about working on an electrical system on a car, trying to be slick. But they were clumsy, and during one conversation Doug tells Peggy, remember, this is to fix the light in your car, and she responds with, what? Oh, okay. The premeditation was striking, many phone calls and trips to the prison were needed to execute their plan for revenge. Gustafson was in prison for all intents and purposes for the rest of his life, so he had nothing to lose. Investigators by now had determined the explosive used in the bombing was Tovex, which is commonly used in mining. Chili's buddy on the outside, Joe Ryan, went by the nickname Toy Man. During recorded phone calls, Peggy talks about going to see the Toy Man and is told by Doug that she needed to contact him. Police got word that Cheely and Gustafson had been involved in a burglary in which industrial explosives had been stolen. They believe Toy Man may have been involved in the crime as well, but were convinced that at least he had provided the explosives to Peggy. The police bomb squad created a similar scenario to what happened at the Kerr household with explosives and a wooden shed. When they ignited the explosive, the shed was completely obliterated. In one of their conversations, Peggy says she had a dream that she saw Gorgeous, referring to George, hitchhiking. She spoke cheerfully and said she hit him with her car, told him who she was, and then broke his neck. This just added to the evidence that Peggy wasn't just a sweet suburban mom with a job in health care. She had a dark passenger. In a recorded conversation 12 days before the bombing, Peggy has a discussion with Doug about not being able to get a switch to work. She states that she can only get the on-off switch to work and not the lever switch and asks for advice on how to fix it. She said she burned up a switch and got a heavy duty switch and Doug says he's going to have to give her further instruction, but he can't do it from prison. Investigators had their sights set on Peggy, but she was in the hospital giving birth when the bomb went off. Investigators knew someone else had to be involved and in one conversation, Doug refers to someone as shit for brains and tells Peggy she's got to get him to help. Shit for Brains turned out to be Doug's brother, Craig, which is ironic because they all seem like shit for brains. But Craig was a mechanic, and his knowledge would prove invaluable to this horrific plot. Doug advised Peggy to get all new parts and have Craig wire everything up and get it ready for her. By now, it was crystal clear that the entire Gustafson family was involved. The authorities soon lined up search warrants and electronic surveillance of all the individuals believed to be involved. They executed a search warrant at Peggy's home in search of any bomb-making materials and anything including receipts that could be specifically linked to the Kerr family bombing. They found evidence that some of the derelict vehicles on the property appeared to have been blown up and what police think may have been practice runs for the real bombing. But they found very little that could link them to the crime. It did put the heat on them, though, and Craig became nervous. Remember when George Kerr appeared to the police at a time when their investigation had bogged down? Well, on March 11, 1992, they got a phone call from a man who had inside information on the bombing as well. That man was Craig Gustafson he realized that he and his girlfriend had become targets of the investigation and he didn't want her to get drugged into this mess he admitted that he had assembled the bomb at his house with materials he received from Peggy Craig claimed he told Peggy not to go through with it and she should detonate the device in the remote wilderness so no one would get hurt wow what a great guy They were able to track the bomb to the Anchorage distribution center it had been mailed from and Craig claimed it was Peggy who ultimately mailed the package to the KERS. Postal inspectors revealed that it was a simple device with a couple of batteries, a couple of switches, and four pounds of explosives. Investigators wanted to collect audio surveillance through Craig but after the interview he disappeared. Investigators were worried he may have committed suicide or did Peggy have a loose end to tie up? Upon a search of Craig's home, they found letters to a postal inspector and one to Craig's parents. In the letters, Craig states that he was in too deep and didn't know when to get out, leading investigators to worry that these may have been suicide notes. They executed a trap and trace warrant on Craig. Two weeks later they got a hit. Craig called his girlfriend, presumably from a payphone, and authorities were excited that he was still alive. His girlfriend agreed to aid investigators and tried to get him to speak with inspectors, but he said he took a one-way flight to Seattle and was hitchhiking to Los Angeles. He agreed to speak to investigators again and said he would call them with a date and time of his choosing. Some sources say they traced his location from his soon-to-be ex-girlfriend's home, and some say it was a phone call to the police. Either way, the call was traced to a hotel in Hollywood, and officers were rushing to the hotel. An armed response team similar to SWAT arrested Craig in the lobby of the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood. Police also arrest Peggy and pull Doug and Raymond from prison for interviews. It's hard to imagine a pregnant woman with an eight year old child taking the risks Peggy did with explosives. The bomb could have gone off at any point in its journey to the Kerr house, could have killed postal workers or even someone going to get their mail as the mailman pulled up. Remember when Doug Gustafson told George Kerr he didn't mean to kill Jeffrey Kane, that it was an accident? Well, that's getting hard to believe as the facts from this case unfold. In the end, Doug pled guilty to mail bombing in exchange for life in prison and for his sister to get a lighter sentence. Peggy Gustafson Barnett pleaded guilty to mail bombing and got a 24-year sentence. Craig Gustafson pleaded guilty and got a 22-year sentence. Toyman Joseph Ryan wasn't charged in connection with the bombing, but was sentenced to four and a half years for possession of explosives. Cheeley and Gustafson are now serving life sentences in prison with no parole. Through what can only be described as a miracle, Shelley Kerr survived the blast and sued the state of Alaska for failing to prevent the bombing being planned and orchestrated from behind prison walls. In December 1995, The state of Alaska agreed to settle with Shelly Kerr for the prisoner-orchestrated mailbomb for $2.6 million. Shelly was hospitalized in intensive care for more than a month. She claimed a lost sense of smell and taste, a destroyed airway, 3,000 shrapnel wounds, and partial permanent vision loss. At trial, Kerr was awarded $11.8 million, with a finding that the prison officials were only 12% at fault in the bombing. The Department of Corrections subsequently settled for $2.6 million. I wonder if that even covered the hospital bills. In the end, people lost. People lost everything. A son, a brother, a friend. A father, a husband, kids lost their mother, everybody lost. Everything left is in pieces, much like the rear window of the MR2 in the house where the bomb ignited. So that wraps up this episode of Exploring Evil, Friends and Enemies. I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to subscribe or follow the show if you're listening in Apple Podcasts. Email case suggestions to exploringevil at gmail.com. Have a great evening. Thanks for listening, friends and enemies.